0: I'm very excited to preach for the 2023 Advent season. Advent is an English word that comes from the Latin uh, word Adventus, which means coming. Advent is a celebration of the coming of the eternal son, the Christ child. And so we devote this uh, season of Advent every year uh, to, to studying the significance of Advent, the historical Jesus, and what it what it means for us as believers. I have prepared for us, for this Advent season in 2023, a sermon series that I'm calling Christmas Christology. Ology means the study of, Christos is the, the Greek word for Christ, so Christology is the study of the Christ. It is a division of theological science which treats specifically the person and the work of the historical Jesus of Nazareth who is more than a man of history, he's God of eternity, God the Son. There are different ways for preachers to preach, different uh, fashions or, or styles, if you will, and, in the manner in which preachers engage the Word of God for the people of God. Uh, sometimes we engage the text thematically, where we look for a theme in the Scripture and we follow it through. Sometimes we get into the text and we do it expositionally where we might begin in one chap- verse 1 of chapter 1 and work our way through one of the 66 books of the Bible. Other times, we'll engage the text uh, with a systematic theological grid where we're moving through the text of Scripture, being mindful to be expositional. Any text that we turn to, we've got to keep it in its context and be careful as we move from one section to the next. But systematic theological preaching... Is, is, is a gift that God gives to the people of God to study His Word and move through the progressive revelation of His Word to study important things such as the Eternal Son, Jesus of Nazareth and so that's what we'll be doing for this Christmas, this Advent we're going to be doing Christology and we're going to be engaging in a, a, a format in this sermon series that is really going to get technical and theological So. When you walked in this morning, I, I hope that you didn't check your brains at the door, but you put your thinking caps on here at Delray Church, because we're, we're going to uh, get geeky with it. We're going to dig into some really deep theology this December. By way of introduction, people have a lot of messed up ideas when it comes to Jesus. Inevitably, around the holidays, they have a way of coming out. The conspiracists and the self-taught Googlers like to allege all sorts of things and particularly around the holiday because they're grinchy like that, you know. So it's like, oh, didn't you know Jesus isn't Jesus? Oh, he's a, it's a mushroom cult or UFOs or so-and-so, they made it up. And I saw this thing on YouTube. And, you know, inevitably every Christmas this stuff comes up the pipes. Uh, so the question at hand for us, as you see on your outline, is who is Jesus? Who is the real Jesus? The real Jesus of history. Who who is that guy? Now, people answer that question in countless ways. The examples are unending, it seems, and always coming, always evolving. Uh, the, The people, the conspiracists like to get creative with it, and there's always something new. It never ceases to amaze me. Jesus is this. Jesus is that. Some people will even preface statements about Jesus by saying something like, well, my Jesus, you know, dot, 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 dot. As if to say that there's a difference between my Jesus and your Jesus. And, of course, the my Jesus rhetoric always implies, in a kind of condescending manner, that my Jesus is more Jesus than your Jesus. So, nanner-nanner. Forget about your Jesus. Forget about my Jesus. Who is Jesus, objectively speaking? Who is the real Jesus? And so today I'm kicking off a four-part sermon series that will... Help us this Advent to really dig into answering this question. Who is Jesus? Let's do some Christmas Christology this December. Shall we, Delray Church? You ready for this? Are you ready? You want, you want to dig in? Yeah? I'm feeling lonely up here. Let me know you're with me. Let's get into some Christology. Who is Jesus? A on your outline. B, Christology. The study of the Christ. We could preach for years on the doctrine of Christ, on the person and work of Christ. There is a plethora of sub Uh, categories in the theology and the field of Christology. Uh, We could talk about the atonement of Christ, the return of Christ, the impeccability of Christ. The the list goes on of things to talk about Christ. Since Christmas is upon us, we're going to be focusing on uh, the Christological uh, dimensions that are relative to the person and work of Christ in the coming of the Christ child. If you look on your outline, you're going to see four dimensions that we are going to be exploring this month. The first is the full deity of Jesus. The second is the full humanity of Jesus. Thirdly, we'll be looking at something called the hypostatic union of Jesus. If you don't know what that means, that's great. Just week three, we're going to dig into that. And then fourthly, we'll be looking at the virgin conception or the virgin birth of Jesus. So today, part one, we're going to dig into this first one. The full deity of Jesus. Next Sunday, we'll get into his humanity, then hypostatic union, then virgin conception. It's Christmas time. I I thought it would be just really fitting for us to study Christ and just get Christological with it. And hopefully, this will enhance your worship of the Christ this Christmas. In order to celebrate someone's birth, you have to understand the birthday boy. Uh, The gift that you offer the birthday boy depends on your knowledge of him. People who know me know when my birthday is and they know the sorts of things that I like. And, uh, and the people who are closer to me are better at, you know, birthday gifting or whatever because they, they know what I like and what I'm into or whatever. And so they're like, oh, you know, here you go. They give me bacon and shoes. They, they just know I like bacon and shoes and books, bacon, books and shoes. So, you, you know, and, and they'll know which ones to pick because they know who I am. When you know a person... It's easier to celebrate their their birth because you know things about them, and 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 for people who don't know you, you know you write a, a you go on Amazon, make a little wish list or whatever. So you know if someone's like, hey, I want to get you something for your birthday, they don't know you too well. Shoop, here's a link, and you could just ping 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 ping. The scriptures are like an Amazon wish list in that regard. Uh, God God hasn't left us in the dark with regard to who He is. The scriptures say, look, this is, this is who I am, this is what I'm into, this is what I like. You, you want to celebrate me and my birthday, this is, this is what I like. That's what the scriptures are like, this is what I like. And more fundamentally than this is what I like, this book tells us what he is and who he is. Who is this God that we worship, that we have gathered here today, who, who is this son who was sent to become the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Now before we delve into the study of Jesus, I need to offer you two main presuppositional points. These points are building blocks of how we're going to be tackling Christology in this series. I have two basic presuppositions that I need you to be aware of, and you have a very detailed outline. It's it's very detailed so that you can track along, so let's move to point two. We've moved from our prolegomenon, our introductory comments, now into point two, presuppositions to Christology. So I've repeatedly raised the question, who is Jesus? But how will I answer this question? You know, some might think that such a question is presumptuous because it implies that we can know the real Jesus. Uh, Well, if that makes me presumptuous in people's eyes, then so be it, because we actually can know the real Jesus. Um, People who say you can't know God are making a really interesting kind of a claim. The person who says you can't know anything about God has actually committed a a logical error. Namely, if you can't know anything about God, how can you know that you can't know anything about God? It's like saying I can't speak a word of English. You you, kind of just did. You spoke a couple of words of English there. So, you know, the claim itself that you can't know anything about God is a claim to know something about God. And so the claim itself falls flat on its face. We can know things about God. We can know things about people of history. Jesus is a historical figure who is historically documented. He had real followers who recorded his teachings. Those teachings and others were compiled into this historical book that we call today the Barit Hadashah or the New Testament, which is a a, a big chunk of the Bible. There's 27 books in it. My presupposition A on your outline you see is that the Bible is the original source material for proper research and scientific investigation with regard to who the Christ child of Christmas is and and more. So when I ask the question, who is the real Jesus, I'm asking what does the historical record of the Bible say? If you want to know who I am, you ask my friends, you ask my family, you ask my wife, you ask my kids. You, You don't ask someone who doesn't know anything about me, you ask the people who are eyewitnesses of my life. If you ask people who don't know anything about me or people who came hundreds of years after me or whatever, they're likely going to give you false views of who I am. What not a better source to turn to than the sources written by the people who knew him personally? And thank God we have those in our New Testament. So we are turning into the Bible. And if you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to begin there. The sources of the New Testament have stood up to the test of time. As you turn in the pages, you realize that your fingers are actually, you're actually doing kind of like archaeology and forensics here. You are holding in your hands original source materials that can be used for research and scientific investigation. While you're you're turning there, I've given you my first presupposition that the Bible is the original source material for proper research and scientific investigation. While you turn to the Gospel of Matthew, let me give you my second presupposition, and it's this the doctrine of the Trinity. Or the triunity of God that we see inside of the scripture and see taught so eloquently in the early ecumenical creeds of the church. The historical doctrine of the Trinity is also something that is important for us as a foundation for investigating our Christology. Why is that? Well, because we believe that Jesus is more than a man of history. We believe he is God of eternity and not any sort of generic God, but a specific God. The true and living triune God. So if we want to talk about Jesus, we need to talk about God first. And in a moment, I'll show you something in Matthew's gospel. If you've turned there, find your way to the third chapter. Understand that the study of Christology is a sub-discipline of a larger field known as theology proper, which is the study of God. In the same way that algebra is a discipline of what? Mathematics. Christology is a discipline of theology proper, or what we call Trinitarianism. If you are a Christian, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't new to you. Uh, The Trinity is one of the essentials of Christian faith. It's what sets us apart. It, It defines who a Christian is and who a Christian is not. Of course, the world is filled with many people who claim to be Christians. We have a plethora of cults that claim to be Christians. And one of the easiest ways of delineating them is just to say, do you believe God is triune or not? And those who say no, but still claim to be Christian, are are, are just claiming they're not actually, because by definition, a Christian is one who holds to the triunity of God. I, I want us to understand this, but I don't want to presume that everyone here listening does understand it. Furthermore, I actually hope that there are people who don't understand this, because it's a joy as a teacher to teach people. And so if you're like, oh yeah, I've, I've always wanted to understand this, or whatever, great, you've come at the perfect time, because we're talking about who God is, you you, got to understand, there's a God who is, and there's a God that humans want, and the two are not the same. There's a God who is, and then there's the figment of our own imagination gods that we invent and we create, and the two are not the same. The word Trinity is a word that has been used in the course of, of history to refer to the reality that there is this one God who eternally exists in three, hence triune, three persons, a Father, a Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible testifies to this, the, B- the Bible screams this, the creeds of the church proclaim this and defend this. I noted earlier that the cults do not believe this. Cults will often say, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, how can you believe it? And I'm like, y- you know the word Bible is not in the Bible either and you believe in the Bible. Uh, For that matter, neither are squirrels and humpback whales and Fruity Loops. That was a random list there, but you get the idea. There's all sorts of things that aren't in the Bible that we all believe in. It's just a term that is used to describe something that is inside of the Bible. I mean, for that matter, there's no English words in the Bible. The Bible wasn't originally written in English. So anytime someone was talking about, well, that word isn't inside of the Bible, they're just throwing up smoke screens. The concept, the doctrine, the belief The reality is inside of the text. Um, So so this reality, let me unpack it as you have on your outline there. Under this point, the historical doctrine of the triunity of God, we have four bullet points that are essential to this belief. Number one, there is one and only one true and living God. The fancy word for this is what we call monotheism. Mono meaning one, theos, God, there is one God. This stands in contradiction to historical religions that are polytheistic, poly meaning many, theos, God, many gods, polytheism. Uh, Christianity is not polytheistic, we're monotheistic, we believe that there is one God. In fact, one of the big ten commandments inside of our holy scripture is to have no other gods. There is only one God, we are to have no other gods. Again, there's a God who is, and there's a God humans want, and the two are not the same. God made us in his image and fallen humans are always trying to repay the favor by making God in their own image. Have no other gods, but the true one and living God. Number two, this one God eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So we have that fancy word monotheism down. Uh, We have the fancy word Trinity, speaking of the three persons. God is three persons, three in one. Some of might say, you know, is that illogical, three in one? Uh, no, that's not illogical to have three in one. We believe that God is one being in three persons. It would be illogical to say that God is one being in three beings. You can't be one being in three beings at the same time in the same way. That's a contradiction. But it is, that is not what the Trinity teaches. It says there is one being in three persons. There is one being in three persons, and these... Persons are completely equal in attributes, each with the same divine nature. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal in attributes. They have the same divine nature. They are equal, meaning that one is not more powerful than the other, or smarter than the other, or faster than the other, or whatever. They, they share the same divine nature. A, a simple way of thinking about this is that there is one what, and there are three who's. I'll say more about that in just a second. But with regard to this point, the three persons being completely equal in attributes, that is to say, so God is omniscient, which means He's all-knowing. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all-knowing. God is omnipotent, meaning He's all-powerful. The Son isn't stronger than the Spirit or the Father stronger than the Son. They, together, are all-powerful. God is assay, He's self-existent, He's immutable, He's, he's simple, He's eternal, "...each of the persons are these things, for they share the same divine nature." "...fourthly, while each person is fully and completely God, the persons are not identical." We know this because the Bible tells us that there is only one God... ...and it refers to each of these three persons as God. In the Bible, the Father is called God, the Son is called God, the Spirit is called God... ...and yet the Bible insists that there is only one God. These are not titles, these are actual persons... Uh, I, I hear sometimes, you know, among the cults and those who are not taught well with regard to this doctrine of God, they'll say things like, oh, it's sort of like, you know, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor. No, those are all referring to one person. Those are just titles that you have as one person, right? A father, son, and spirit are not titles, they're actual persons, they actually talk to each other. They actually love each other. They actually work together. And God is perfect. Uh, th- this is really profound for us because you realize that before, before the world, before God created anything, it wasn't like God was lonely or bored. He's perfect. So, so when he creates the creation, it's not out of any lack in him. Uh, creation itself is a gift and an expression of his love. And that He would make creatures that image Him to, to know Him and live for Him. That, it, that itself is a gift that He would breathe life into creation. This perfect and all-knowing and all-loving and all-wise God. This God eternally exists in three persons. These persons are distinct. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. There are three persons in one being. Or another way of thinking about that is three whos in one what. Uh, I, if, you, if you pointed at me and said, what, what, what is that? You'd say, well, that's a human, right? That's what I am. If you pointed at me and said, who is that? Well, that, that, that's, that's Matt Jones. That's who I am. If, if I pointed at this microphone right here and I said, what is that? You say, well, that, that's a microphone. And I said, well, who is that? You say, well, there's not a who in that what. Some what's have who, some what's don't have a who. God is a kind of a what that actually has three who's. And you will never run into another what, another thing that is like Him because He is one of a kind. Unlike you and I, we are members of a species. God is not a member of a species. He's one of a kind. There is only one of Him. There is only one God. And He eternally exists in three loving persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And He created the world in love. He created the world in love. And the world turned its back on His love and rejected Him and made a mess out of His perfect creation. The giver giver of life. The consequence of rebelling against the giver of life is the taking back of life. And so humanity dies because humanity has rebelled against the giver of life. But God, being rich in mercy and grace, the eternal triune God, has a plan before the foundations of the world that the Father would send the Son by the Spirit to step into the sinful, messed up creation and rescue a people from Himself through it. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus getting into the waters of the River Jordan. The prophet John the Baptizer is there calling people to repentance. There's a water ritual in first century Jewish culture known as mikvah, mikvah ot in the plural. You ceremonially wash yourself as a symbol of recognizing your part in this aforementioned mess. We've rebelled against God we've turned our backs on God, we've rejected His love, and so we we come to water and we cleanse ourselves as a symbol of acknowledging our sins have made us dirty, our sins have brought death upon ourselves. We go down into the water symbolizing that death and coming out of it symbolizing new life. John was using mikveh as a unique historical preparation for the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, predicted this one who would come and rescue the people from from Moses, from the patriarchs Abraham and Isaac and Yaakov before Moses, Moses to David, to all the prophets. They all testify that there is this coming one who will rescue the people from sin. And so here we have the coming one, and here he is in no other place but the dirty waters of the mikvahot. Look at verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus gets into the waters of baptism, not as a symbol or confession of sin. As I said a moment ago, that it's a symbol of washing, a symbol of repentance, a symbol of faith. Jesus gets into the waters of baptism, not because he needs to confess or that he needs to be cleansed. He gets into the dirty waters of baptism because he has come in solidarity for sinners. Your filth in those waters, I will take upon myself. Jesus, look at the text, came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened. That's not a normal baptism. I've baptized a lot of people as a pastor. I was baptized as a believer myself and never have the heavens opened. The heavens opened as he is baptized. And he saw, look at the text, the spirit of God descending as a dove and light lighting on him. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What is the point that we have at hand? That the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Son. What does the text say here in Matthew chapter 3? You've got the Son, Jesus, there. You've got the Father speaking from the heavens, behold my beloved Son, and you have the Spirit there. You have three distinct persons at work, in display, in the scene. The Father, the first person from heaven, says this is my Son. The second person, who has become A man, the historical Jesus. The Spirit of God descends on him in the form of a dove. In the storyline of the Hebrew Bible, the the coming of a dove inaugurates a picture of the New Age dawning. We think of the judgment of the flood with Noah and and the dove that comes to symbolize the judgment is over. A new day has dawned. The historic river of the Jordan is, is where the people of Israel entered into the land of promise with the Ark of the Covenant. And when they brought the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, the, the waters of the river Jordan split and they went in to prepare, to build the, the, the kingdom of God. Now the Ark of the Covenant has come, the presence of God, God the Son, and He is not in the chest of the covenant, He's in the flesh of a man. And this time the waters don't open, the heavens do. It's a powerful scene. This is a powerful God. The God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now with this understanding then, we move to point three on the outline to talk about the historical Jesus as the full divine Son. He's the second person of the Godhead. He's fully God because God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So when we think about the manger, when we think about... Christmas, it's not that God became a man, it's that the second person took on a second nature and became fully human. We'll talk next week about His humanity, and then we'll talk the week after about how His humanity and His deity joined together in the one person of the Son. But this morning, I come to herald that Jesus of Nazareth is God the Son in the flesh. I come to herald that this is important good news because we made a mess out of the creation, And we need to be rescued so we have the foundation of the trinity god the father the son and the spirit we understand that this man here in the waters of the jordan in chapter three is the eternal son jesus is the son the person born in the manger who we celebrate at christmas existed before he was born how he's god while the human nature of the baby jesus did not exist prior to christmas prior to the conception The Son of God did exist because God is eternal and He has always existed. Now we're going to go look in the Bible, which is, as I shared by way of uh, introduction and presuppositions, this is our, our source text for scientific investigation. So we're going to go into the Bible and we're going to look and see what the Bible says about the deity of Jesus. We're going to look at two lines of evidence as you have on your outline. The biblical proof, the Bible says it, and then we'll look at, Uh, We'll we'll look at Jesus himself and what he has to say about himself. So with regard to the biblical proof you see three points on your outline Uh, The word God is applied to Jesus Second the word Lord, which is a title that is used for God is applied to Jesus and then third We'll see some miscellaneous passages that portray Jesus as God Would you turn from the gospel of Matthew over to the right and find your way to the gospel of John John chapter 1 specifically? I started my sermon by saying that there are those who have messed up ideas about Jesus, there's a God who is, there's a God people want, the two are not the same. Uh, The God who is, who's Father, Son, and Spirit, it is important for us as we celebrate Advent to really celebrate the birthday boy for who he is, and fundamentally, he's God. See, on your outline, the word God, theos, in the Greek, is used of Jesus. You have on your outline a, a series of examples the first one is where I've asked you to turn, John chapter 1. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In this passage, John refers to the Son of God as the Word. He calls Him the Word, Lagos. It is very clear that he is speaking about Jesus here. If you draw your eyes down to verse 14, it says, "...and the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth." The word, word, as I said, the Greek word, logos. uh, People write, uh, write extensively on this term, logos. To the Greeks, the word logos was a defining principle that related to the ordering of the universe, The Stoics saw the Logos as a principle that brought order to the universe. In the Jewish context, John is Jewish, writing of the Jewish Messiah. They saw the Logos as dealing with God's creation. In the book of Genesis, God creates by the power of the Word. He speaks, and it is so. God spoke, He initiates, He creates. And so, Logos is personified then in the Hebrew mind, and this seems to be what John is doing. In trying to synthesize Greek and Hebrew thought, the Hellenistic Jewish figure Philo found the concept of the Logos to be a useful idea for expressing the means that God used in creating and governing the ordering of the universe. For him, in a sense, the Logos was divine and is with God. Uh, this, this is the same explanation that John is giving. Think about it. John says he is God and he's with God. Again, this brings us to the Trinity, the Son is God, and he's with God because he's distinct from the Father and the Spirit. So he's with the Father, he's with the Spirit, and he is God because he, the Son, the Father and the Spirit, share the same divine nature. One what and three who's. John is very clear on this, that Jesus is divine. In the beginning. He's there before it all, as I said. The eternal triune God, who is perfect, who who didn't have to create uh, because he wasn't needy, he wasn't lonely. Creation itself was a gift. John John says, he's there from the very beginning. You know that everything that has a beginning has a cause. You know the universe had a beginning, therefore the universe has a cause. A belief in the existence of God, the creator of the universe, is a very scientific and fundamental belief. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, so the universe had a cause. God created it's, it's exactly what the scriptures are bearing witness to. But more than leaving us with some generic creator God, the scriptures are telling us who he is. God isn't a deadbeat dad who, who, who got the creation pregnant and was like, I'm not ready for this. Let me just go dip out, you know. And leaving the creation to, to take saliva tests to try to figure out who our, our daddy in heaven is. No, God's not a deadbeat dad. He has come to reveal himself to us. And that's what the text is doing. Turn from John 1 over to John 5. I'm going to show you another text through history in the sands of time of God saying, this is who my son is. In John chapter 5, Jesus is performing s- some miracles. He happens to perform a miracle on the holy day of, uh, of Shabbat or Sabbath. Uh, this upsets some of the haters who weren't feeling Jesus. And so we read in verse 16, for this reason, some Jewish people in verse 16 were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath. Of course, there were other Jewish people who were loving Jesus and following after him. So this isn't, uh, you know, John's not being anti-Semitic. John's Jewish. But he's just noting, hey, there were some in the community who were persecuting Jesus because he did a miracle on Shabbat. Uh, Verse 17, Jesus answered him and he says this. And this is cheeky. This is really cheeky here. He says... My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Shabbat is the day where you're not supposed to work, right? And so they're getting mad at him because he performed a miracle, which is kind of petty and lame. I mean, it's like, he healed someone, you know? Well, that's work. You can't do that on Shabbat, you know? And then he presses into him and goes, Yeah, well, the father's father's working on Shabbat, and I myself am working. For this reason, look at verse 18. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Uh, Moderns will say things like, well, if he's the son, then he can't be God because like sons are, you know, like popped out, right? So the father is like, you know, the big capital G God and the son's like a lowercase g God because by definition, sons are popped out. You say, no, you're projecting onto God your human construct. There, the reason why we have fathers and sons in creation is because there is eternal father and son out there who eternally dwells. And the father didn't pop out the son, they've always dwelled together that way. Uh, there's always been a father, there's always been a son, there's always been a spirit. They're eternal. They're eternal. In that culture, to claim God as your father, they didn't hear it the way modern critics of our faith will and say, oh, well, he's a lowercase g god. No, no, they understood. What does it say? What does it say? Verse 18, you're making yourself equal to God. You're claiming he's your father. You're claiming to be his son. You're making yourself equal to God. So it's quite clear from the historical record that Jesus purported to be equal to God. Now let's move from John. We've considered Matthew We've considered John. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and find your way to Hebrews chapter 1. Another first century Jewish text written by the Jewish followers of Jesus. While you're turning to Hebrews chapter 1 and you're finding your way to that text, let me rattle off a couple of verses that you have on your outline. Romans chapter 9 verse 5 says, There are the patriarchs and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Christ who is what? Who is what? He is God over all. He is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus 2, 13 talks about how we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our who, what, what, who, what, what, our great God and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Now you've turned to Hebrews chapter 1. Find your way into the text. Let's just start looking at verse 1 of Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago in the prophets, many portions in many ways. "...in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the world." Now in verse 3, the pronoun he is going to switch to the subject Jesus. Look at verse 3. "...he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification from sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high." This is clear. Jesus is the he here. You see that? And now the author moves to talk about how the Son of God became lower than angels when he was born in the manger. He became lower than the angels when he was incarnated as a man. Apparently, some, the author of the Hebrews is addressing, apparently there were some who had gotten into uh, what we would call today the New Age, worshipping angels. And the author's like, hey, uh, no, nah, we, we don't get down like that. We don't worship angels. We only worship God, right? There's only one God, have no other gods. We only worship God. We don't worship men, angels, anything else. The author wants to show the audience, though, that, that hey, 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 Jesus is not an angel. He's, he's God. Look at, look at verse 4. Having become as much better than the angels, he has inherited a more excellent name than they... For to which of the angels did he ever say? And now look at the text. It lists a bunch of stuff that uh, God has never said to angels. But only to Jesus, the son, has he said, skip to verse 8. But of the son he says, so this is the father talking to the son, verse 8. Of the son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. The father calls the son God. You see that? Uh, cults who deny the deity of Jesus don't like this verse, nor the other verses that we've considered. It's highly problematic if you're going to reject the deity of Jesus, because here the Father calls the Son God. On your outline, you have another uh, couple of cross references here. Let me shoot them at you. Second Peter chapter one verse one: To those who have received, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Then you have Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. Hundreds of years before Jesus, a prophecy of Jesus, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So these passages are pretty straightforward, sampling of the historical record that show that Jesus is God. Now, there's a second group of passages, as I said, that also get us here in terms of Jesus being called Lord. The Greek word is kurios, the word Lord can be used in a variety of ways. You will see three listed on your outline. The first two A and B are always in reference to God. Uh, there is a way in which in the ancient world you could call someone Lord and you didn't meet it in a God way. It's just sort of like Sir or a title of respect. And so, so you see here Lord as Sir as an, as an example or Lord as Master as an example. But the word Lord can be used in another way, not as a mere sort of proper sign of respect, sir, or master, but it can be used as a claim for a deity. So you have C, the Lord as God in the New Testament. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, what's known as the LXX or the Septuagint, it uses the word Lord, kurios, uh, translating the Hebrew divine name for God, Yahweh. And it does this over 6,000 times. On your outline, I, I'm not li- I didn't list all 6,000 of them because that would be a long outline and the outline's already long, right? But you have nine examples on your outline of various places in the New Testament. And so you have these New Testament examples. For sake of time, I'm not going to read them because we've got to move quickly here. But you have examples in the Gospels. You have examples in the Epistles. And you have examples in the Apocalypse of John or what we call the Book of Revelation. So thus far, we have seen that Jesus is called God. And Jesus is called Lord, specifically in the sense not of sir or master or respect, but of divinity, of deity. Point three on your outline shows you passages where Jesus himself is straight up portrayed as God. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Uh, Revelation 22 is the last chapter of the Bible, and in this section, Jesus is speaking. And he speaks to John and he offers him these words. Only God can say these words, right? Otherwise, someone would be God before God, which is a logical contradiction. That's Revelation 22. Look at the next reference, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, Jesus is said to be the exact representation of the divine nature. Um, You know, this, this this is a slam dunk here. You see Jesus portrayed as God. In this section, it says that Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. You have Hebrews in front of you. Look at it. This his is in reference to God, which is very clear in verse 1. Uh, he, is in, he's, he shares the divine nature with the Father and the Spirit. Philippians chapter 2 is the next reference that you have on your outline. It's a great passage for scores of reasons. In verse 6, it says that Jesus exists in the form of God, Morphe, speaking of his existence before Christmas. He, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. The word form here speaks of the nature, the character of something. It is the embodiment of the essential features and qualities of something. God. Jesus is the form of God, meaning he embodied in physical form the invisible, immaterial nature of God. Whoa, this passage is very clear in affirming equality with God. That Jesus was equal to God because Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of God is equal to the Father God and the Holy Spirit three in one. Okay, we've looked at passages about Jesus. Now let's turn to a passage where Jesus speaks himself. Let's hear Jesus throwing down the gauntlet. Let me tell you about myself. We move on the outline now to the Christological proof Jesus knew it. Turn to the left from the book of Hebrews into the Gospel of Luke and find your way into the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. We'll consider some points. First of all, Jesus teaches as one with divine authority. When Jesus teaches, he, he very clearly shows that he knows who he is. He is very clear in his teaching to point to his deity by showing the unique authority that he had as a rabbi. The religious leaders of his day acknowledged that they had no authority of their own. Moses and the Old Testament prophets and authors, they didn't speak of their own authority. And they would say things like, this is, this is what the Lord says when they spoke. However, when Jesus speaks, right, he he says something different. He'll say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Moses said this, the prophet said this, but I say to you. And when he teaches, Jesus speaks of himself as, look at this text here, Matthew chapter 7, he describes himself as the judge of the world. I mean, even our great poet Tupac knows that only God is my judge, right, as he famously said which uh, is, it was always interesting to me uh, because th- that, that he says is kind of a comfort. Only God is my judge, but actually that, that should cause you to be weak in the knees. I would much prefer someone other than God to be my judge because I can bamboozle, hoodwink, play the fool, talk my way out of it or whatever, but not with God. Jesus is God. Jesus is judge, Matthew 7. Matthew 14, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Whoa, whoa. People understood what he was doing when he invokes his divine authority. At the end of the famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, we read that the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus taught with his authority, this divine authority. Secondly, Jesus did amazing stuff, aka miracles, to show his deity. I've given you a sample of a passage to look at on your outline. It's very clear looking at these texts that Jesus performs miracles as a part of authenticating that he was God. In John chapter 2, 11, Jesus performed miracles, and we read that he performed these miracles specifically to manifest his glory. That is to prove that he was God. Another cool historical example that you have is Luke chapter 5, where I ask for you to turn. It is cross-referenced in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 2 as well. So chapter 5, draw your eyes at verse 17. One day he was teaching... And there were some Pharisees and some teachers of the law. They were sitting there who had come from the village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd. They went up to the roof and they let him down through the tiles with a stretcher in the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, "'Friend, your sins are forgiven.'" The scribes and the Pharisees began reasoning, who is this man who blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, being aware of their reasonings, answered and he said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? I mean, that's totally like, duh, he's God. He knows what you're thinking, right? Uh, he, he, he knows what's going on. When you're talking to someone who's telling you what you're thinking, um, he's not normal, right? So, so why are you guys thinking this? How do you know what I'm thinking? Which is easier for you to say, verse 23, he asks them, your sins have been forgiven of you, or to say, get up and walk? Uh, He's he's setting it up. He's just getting ready for a a mic drop there, right? Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because people can't see that. A paralyzed guy getting up and walking, you know, it's a small community, right? It's like everyone knows Crippled Johnny uh, and his buddies are always dragging him around. This could make for a really funny TikTok series of Crippled Johnny and his buddies, and then one day they they stumble upon Jesus, right? They bring him in, and everyone's seen Crippled Johnny. And then all of a sudden, Jesus says, hey, what's easier for me to say? Uh, uh, Get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven. Verse 24, but as you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Hey, Crippled Johnny, get up and walk. Immediately, verse 25, they get up, he gets up. He picks up what he had been lying on. And he went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. They were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. A paralyzed man is brought to Jesus on a stretcher in the public. Jesus tells the guy his sins are forgiven. The religious people say, Hey, 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 only God can do that. And he goes, All right, uh, let's up the ante. What's easier for me to say? Get up and walk or your sins are forgiven. In other words... When he gets up and walks, you know that my claim to be able to forgive sins is real. Because only God can do that. And likewise, only God can forgive sin. I describe to you the eternal God who creates the world and he loves the world. He pours his heart out on the world and how the world rejected him. And now we have sin. We've rebelled against the giver of life. And that rebellion, the fitting punishment for it is the taking back of life. And and so we, we die in our sins. But God, Jesus has come to forgive us of our sins. And he wants lost people to know that, that I can forgive your sins. And he alone can do this because of who he is. You read the historical accounts. He's come to forgive sinners. And he has come, God the Son, to do just that. When he stills the storm in Matthew 8, when he multiplies the food in Matthew 14, when he changes water into wine in John 2. He shows that he's God, he has immortality and power. He raises the, the dead. He, he shows omniscience by knowing what's going on in other people's thoughts as we see in the text and in other places like Mark 2, eight. He knows the future free will acts of others like John 6.64. His followers correctly thought that he was omniscient and they write about this. Look at John chapter 16, I'll put it in front of you. The disciples said, now we can see that you know all things and you do not even need to talk to anyone or ask questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. He knew things about the woman of Samaria in John 4 that would be impossible to know, only God would know. Jesus shows he's omnipresent even in a localized physical body. He sees things that are outside of his vision He's present with his disciples even to the end of the age, he promises. Jesus heals the sick, raises the dead, casts out demons, the list goes on. Who can do that? God alone. Three, Jesus' favorite nickname for himself, implied deity. He calls himself the Son of Man, as we saw just a moment ago in the text. This is Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself. The phrase, the Son of Man... Uh, it, it can be used in a way that means like uh, an honorific human being, but Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man and tethers it to the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7, which has a messianic figure who's divine, who comes from the heavens to the earth. He invokes this title when he speaks of forgiving sins, as we see here in the text. Here's a cross-reference in Mark chapter 2 where he says, you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to do what? To forgive sins. When he's accused of breaking uh, Shabbat, and in Mark 2, Jesus says the Shabbat, the Sabbath, was made for man, but not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath. The implication is I'm not merely or solely a human. I am divine. Jesus pressed his divinity on others. We see in passages like Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Who do you say that I am? This notorious question. And then he drills into them his, his deity, when his mom was grilling him about his whereabouts in Luke chapter 2, Jesus tells her that he was in my father's house, uh, presenting the unique relationship that God the Son has with God the Father. Fifthly, Jesus received worship, says he could forgive sins. Those are also divine prerogatives. It's a serious sin to worship things that aren't God, including people or, or things or false religion. We, we, the term for it is idolatry, and it is blasphemous to give worship to anything other than God. Jesus, however, receives worship in passages like Matthew 14, Matthew 28, John 9, John 20. If Jesus didn't believe that he was God, he should have vehemently rejected people from worshiping him, as Paul and Barnabas did in Acts 14 when people tried to worship them, or the angel did in Revelation 19.10, says, hey, don't worship me, worship God alone. In addition to receiving worship, as we've already seen in texts, he forgives sins. I've referenced the healing of the paralytic earlier in Luke 5. He sees their faith. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Who is this who forgives but God alone? That's right. Only God alone can do this. Now, let me land the plane. I've given you a fire hose of theology this morning. Are you still, are you still with me? You need to get up, shake your legs or something. Let's do a conclusion here. Number one, if Jesus is not God, we have no unique revelation of God. We just have prophets writing hundreds and thousands of years ago. Like other religions have their prophets writing hundreds of thousands of years ago. And false religions have prophets writing and blogging and uh, tick-tocking now, right? We just have people talking about God or writing about God. That's all that we would have. But Jesus isn't about God or writing about God. In fact, in our New Testament, we do have his letters to the seven churches written in Revelation. But we don't have a text that's written from him. He doesn't need to write one because he is him. He's God. So again, God's not a deadbeat dad who impregnated the world and left us to fumble around in the darkness and figure out who He is. He has come for us. Jesus had a unique relationship with heaven. In Luke chapter 2, verse 49, I, I referenced it quickly a moment ago where He speaks of being in the Father's house. He's a, he is a member of the Trinity, He's God the Son who has come. John, John 14. He who has seen me has seen my Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? In John, John 1, no one can say that they, they have, that they have seen God at any time. Only the begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained him. Uh, begotten, by the way, doesn't mean birthed. It means one and only. Technically, it's also uh, monogenes, a theological term to describe what we call the doctrine of eternal generation, a distinct personal relation between the father and son. This passage is beautiful, and it presupposes the son's conscious existence distinct from the father, and it expresses his immediate and and, and endearing, uh, heartbreaking uh, uh, love that he has for his people, a love that he has in the father himself. Uh, Next on your outline, God did not send a messenger, but he came himself. We've all heard the saying, don't shoot the messenger. Jesus is no mere messenger. He is God. The baby in the manger is God. God didn't send a third party to clean up our mess. He came himself. Therefore, God can be known definitively and personally in the Son. Again, I quoted John 14, 9 a moment ago. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If Jesus is not God, not only do we not have revelation from God, we also have no salvation. How else could one conceive of our atonement being accomplished apart from the triune God. God becoming man, living, dying, God becoming a baby, diapers, colicky, stinky, you know, crawling, all the things that babies do, and only only being born only to die, uh, raised from the dead. How, how, How do you explain this apart from the reality of the triune God? Only someone who is infinite, God, could bear all sin. A finite creature would be unable to bear the penalty of sin. The sacrifices of finite creatures in the Hebrew Bible are never satisfied. Besides, no human is able to live up to the perfect life, to offer a perfect offering for sin. Salvation comes from God. So if Jesus isn't God, he's incapable to save us. Throughout the Bible, we're told that salvation is from God. If Jesus is not God, then someone other than God is our savior. How does that even work? Third, if Jesus is not God, then the cross would make God a child abuser. How so? How so? Well, there are some antagonists of Christianity who have said that the death of Jesus on the cross is child abuse because you have the father just punishing the son for something that he did not do. Right? If I'm driving down the street or whatever and I got, I got Micah in the car uh, riding shotgun and whatever, we see someone uh, run out of Jersey Mike's with a bunch of sandwiches and the, the store guy comes out, hey, stop him! He stole the sandwiches, you know? And then I turn to Micah and I punch him in the mouth and he goes, "What did you do that dad? That's for the guy stealing the sandwiches. You know, he's like, that's a weird, that's weird. Uh, critics of Christianity will say, well, isn't that what you guys believe? Your father is, is just hanging his son on, on the cross of Calvary for what these strangers have done? Well, the reason why this is wrong is because the, the, the son is God. Jesus is God. Uh, if I punch Micah in the face, we're not the same being. We're two different what's and two different who's. But the one what, the one God is three who's. And the father does satisfy his wrath, what we call propitiation. But the son is God and the son makes it clear that he lays down his own life. If Jesus is not God, then yeah, that would be some, some weird kind of God child abuse thing. Call a social worker. Uh, you know that that like how would that even work? That's that's that just renders the faith like really confusing and peculiar See if jesus is not god. We have no close and personal relationship with god in john 14 Jesus said what famous passage. I am the way i'm the truth and the life No one comes to the father, but through me if you have known me You would have known my father also from now on you do not know him and have seen him Right. He, he's come to give us access to the father we just finished studying the doctrine of adoption in the month of November, right? We, we, we saw that the Son makes us sons. He gives us His daddy. He, he tells His followers, Hey, when you pray, pray this. Our Father. You mean your dad is my dad? Yeah, that's what I've come to do. The creation, the mess. We rejected God. We rejected His love. We become orphaned in the darkness. And God, the Son comes... And the Spirit, like a social worker, rescues us out of the darkness and brings us to the Son. And the Son makes us sons. And the Son sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Because Jesus is God... We have one who sympathizes with us. Every reason to run to him. Whatever burden you've been carrying this week, whatever burden will be lumped on your back in the upcoming weeks, you can run to him and know that he sympathizes with you in it. You can run to him and know that he is the perfect mediator. A mediator is one who stands between feuding parties. Party one has, a, has beef with party two, and the mediator comes to solve the beef. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We've explored this morning the deity of Jesus. Next Sunday we'll explore the humanity of Jesus and we'll talk about that mediation. As man he represents us and as God he has the prerogative to forgive us. And let me tell you here this morning, there's not a person in this room that that offer, that offer hasn't been made for. You can come this morning and have your sins forgiven. You can cry out to him and say, I'm sorry, I have sinned, I've heard of you, I've heard what you have done this morning, I, I, I need your forgiveness. And you know what? His mercies are new every single morning, including this morning. He will forgive you, He will change you, He will invite you into the worship of Him, which is my final point because Jesus is God, we worship Him. If Jesus is not God, Christmas is is reduced to, to nothing it's, it's gibberish it's nothing what is it he's just a guy it's it's just another day off of work it's just another holiday to add on to the calendar this isn't just a, a holiday for us it's a worship day it's a worship season advent is upon us when Jesus rose from the dead Thomas came came to him and Thomas was having issues with believing in him and and Jesus said to Thomas here reach with your fingers see my hands Reach here with your hand and put it on my side. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And Thomas then met with the evidence. He looks at Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me and you have believed, blessed is he who has not seen and yet believed. Again, that offer is for you this morning. Unlike Thomas, you didn't see his risen body or touch his risen body. But you can come and you can believe in him. And you know what? You can touch him. You can be in His presence. You can know His love. You can come to Him today and cry out for forgiveness and be given new life. Set free from the bondage of sin and death. Set free from punishment in the afterlife. Not only being rescued from punishment and given the hope of heaven, more important than heaven, you're given Him. Heaven is heaven because of who's there, God. Right? My home is home because of who's there, my family. Heaven is heaven because of who's there, the ascended and risen Lord. We come to the communion table now where we look forward to that day when Christ comes again. We're celebrating his first coming in Advent. And as we celebrate the first coming, we're thinking of his second coming when he will return. And the reason why he has tarried from the first Christmas to Christmas future is because he is patient and he wishes for none. He wishes for none to die apart from him. I thank God that God waited, uh, you know, for the 21st century, for the 20th century, when he rescued me from sin and gave me new life by his spirit. And I pray that this morning, too, there will be among us those who will thank God, who will come to know him and live for him. Let's celebrate communion. We're going to sing two final closing songs and let us worship the one who has come for us. The baby in the manger is not a mere baby. He's God of eternity. And so we come now to worship him. Let's pray and then I invite you to come to the table. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for Delray Church. I thank you for the honor of being a pastor in this church. And Lord, the great gift that you have given in our family. That they come hungry and they'll sit for an hour and listen to systematic theology Lord, what a blessing you have given to your church here. In a day where many churches are given to 20-minute, 30-minute sermonettes, uh, light shows and smoke machines and attractional things to get people in, Lord, we just humbly gather our brother Ian. He's going to play a guitar and we're going to sing. There's nothing fancy going on here. And yet there's something absolutely miraculous going on here. You are saving people. You are sanctifying your church. We are coming to the table, Lord, and and we're celebrating the body and the blood broken and shed for us. There would be no body and no blood if there was Christmas. There would be no Easter if there wasn't Christmas. And Christmas, you, the eternal Son, took a body and took blood that you would die for us, that you would rescue us. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. We praise you. We adore you. We pray that as we come to the table that your spirit would move and draw us in repentance and faith in you and oneness with your Father. In Christ's name I ask this. Amen.